if you would, Genesis 6. We started a series last week called The God Who Redeems, and the big idea behind the series is that we're going to be going through Bible stories. We're going to be going through some of the what we would call the classic stories of the Bible, and this is how we framed the stories last week. We said these are stories of God restoring His people for His glory. And the big idea behind that is that we tend to make everything about us, right? Like, we're all about ourselves. We even make the stories in the Bible about us, and they're actually written to be something that gives God greater glory. Those stories are in place so that we know something more about how great God is. God is the hero of the stories of the Bible. So for the next 12 weeks, that's what we're going to be doing. And last week, we learned a little bit about the resolution of God as it related to the story of Adam and Eve, our first parents. And it was simply this, the resolution of God is to redeem and restore our worship. Because what happened in the garden was that Adam and Eve, they traded in their worship of the living God to worship themselves and their own desires and their own wants and what they thought was the best direction and course for their life. They were wrong, like we all are, when we decide to turn against God and make ourselves the chief end of our own fulfillment and desires, right? So we learned that last week. And this week, we're going to dive into the story of Noah. You guys know Noah, right? Who here knows the story of Noah? The guy, one of you, well, that's good, because we're going to go into it, like two of you guys. So the guy with the beard, the guy with the ark, the guy with the animals, the guy in the Sunday school pictures holding the staff with the smile, Russell Crowe. I mean, I think we're getting into it with that, right? So we're going we're gonna to dive into the story of Noah, but this is what we're actually going to be grappling with today. We're actually going to be grappling with this thing called grace. We're going to be grappling with grace. We just sang about grace. We opened up our time of singing with grace alone. And what grace really is, is God doing a work in our life because we can't work our life out. Let me say that again. Grace is doing, is God doing a work in our life because we just can't seem to work our life out. Like we saw last week with our boy Adam. Not really good at figuring out what's best for us. Grace is what God does when he applies his salvation into our lives because that's what he wanted to do based on his own goodwill and pleasure. And grace, having said that, is not only applied when God saves us. Grace isn't this thing that just happens when we come to Christ. But it also secures us, and it also sustains us in it. That's what God does with his grace. It's not like God has to be frugal and conserve grace. All right? It's not like he just has a limited supply of it, only enough to save us, and then he's just kind of tapped out after that. That's not God's grace. There's a continual outpouring of his grace, and that's what we want to look at today. And the big idea is simply this, that God's grace saves, it secures, and it sustains us because God is faithful. Because God is faithful. All right? Now, you're all looking at me right now. Listen to what I'm saying. Because God is faithful. Not us. God's grace saves, secures, and sustains us because God is faithful. And that's what we're going to see when we look into the big guy's story about the boat, the ark, and the animals today. Which, by the way, we're going to just skim through because there's a lot and we can end up extending that to 19 weeks. 
And that would pass the entire series, and I can't afford to do that with you guys. Here's a little bit of context before we get into that. As we were getting to the end of Adam and Eve's story in Genesis 3, things just get crazier, all right? So Adam and Eve are ushered out of the garden. God removes them from the garden. And really what it reminds me of is it reminds me of every season finale of The Walking Dead, if you guys are into that show, right? Everything that could go wrong, it goes wrong. Everything that could go wrong goes wrong. And you're left waiting for the next season, wondering who's going to live and who's going to die. I mean, that's just the reality of it. In the case of Adam, the answer is this. Everyone. Everyone dies. Kind of like the next season probably of Walking Dead. Everyone dies. If you ever wondered where the phrase paradise lost comes from, it's right here. This is where it comes from. Paradise lost. Adam and Eve, they were cast out of the garden. The relationship with God, it was broken. It was severed. They wouldn't experience that intimate relationship with God anymore. They wouldn't experience God walking in the cool of the garden anymore. They lost that face-to-face intimacy of that relationship. And that's what happens when we sin. Sin creates consequences, not just for ourselves either, as we're going to see, but it creates consequences for everybody around us. So Adam and Eve sinning, it didn't just ruin it for them. We're all sitting here in this warehouse watching snowfall because of something Adam and Eve did thousands of years ago. So the consequences are, they're wide. And they they exist for our family, our community, our town, our city, our state, our country. And so after Adam and Eve, all creation, all the world became infected with sin, right? It's like when you get the cold or flu, right? Some of you guys have been having that. My wife's been struggling with the cold now for, how long has it been, 27 weeks? I'm just kidding. I know it feels that way. Um, But it affects your whole body, doesn't it? Like when we're sick, it affects everything. You're not laying in bed with the flu thinking, you know what, man, my elbow though, it feels great right now. Like everything, every, but you know, I'm just, I'm stoked because right here, like it's, it's good. It's, no, man, your whole body's affected. All of you feels bad because it's something that is affecting your whole body. So what happens after this is that Adam and Eve, they have some kids. It tells us in Genesis chapter 4. They have two sons, Cain and Abel. And we actually read about Cain, again, the son of Adam and Eve, who ends up killing his brother Abel out of jealousy and rage. Right? It's the first time we see murder in the Bible. Again, Adam and Eve sinned. They're cast out of the garden. This is one of the results. This is when sin is taken to the next phase and the next level. These are the things that come out of us because sin is inside of us. So out of jealousy and rage, we learn that Cain murders Abel. And what we learn about sin in that, what we learn about sin is that sin happens because we're sinners. We've talked about that before. We sin because we're sinners. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. It's the identity that we share. It's not outside in. It's inside out, right? So in other words, I had to bring my car a couple days ago to Scott Long on Friday, to be exact, because it was making noises and that beautiful little engine light blinked on, right? The engine light didn't come on because I forgot to apply an extra coat of wax to the car last time I washed it. There's something internally wrong with the car, and it's going to affect what comes out of the car. That's the effect that sin had on Adam and Eve's offspring. And then by the time we get to chapter 5 in Genesis, we see that 
played out completely because the key line, if you go through the genealogy in there, which we're not, and you can thank me for that later, is that every family line is mentioned and afterwards it says these three words, and he died. That couldn't be written about before, but after sin, after Adam and Eve are cast out of the garden, after they start having kids, after those things uh, create generations of people, and he died can be the only ultimate outcome of what happens to every family on the earth after that point. God wasn't lying when he told Adam and Eve that disobedience ultimately, that separation from God when we sin, it leads to death. Because death is now inevitable, we learn, so is the severity of sin. It just keeps ramping up. It's not like we get a little better. It's not like since Adam and Eve, the population just kind of self-improved. It's not like they went to Barnes and Noble, hit the self-help section, grabbed some books. Everybody's doing a lot jollier now. That's not what happened. What happened is things keep getting worse. When we get to Genesis chapter 6, we see that there's a population increase, right? Population is just going out of control. It increases. But so does the wickedness of men as the population increases, Don Carson, he's a, he's a theologian professor out of uh, Chicago. He said this, people do not drift toward holiness. People don't just drift accidentally towards being more like Christ, being more obedient and holy. That's not what happens. In other words, when men and women are left to their own devices, they do nothing but devise evil. So when we're left alone, that's what eventually takes place. That's what eventually happens. And at this early point in world history, we're told in chapter 6, verse 5, if you want to look there, it says this, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. Now, by regret, this doesn't imply that God thought he made a mistake. God doesn't make mistakes. But this word is used to help us understand the depth of sorrow that God experienced over the other depravity of our sin. How far we had drifted away from Him because we don't drift towards Him without Him. Okay? So it had reached a point that God decided in verse 7, He says, to blot out man whom I have created. And so kind of going back to last week, we don't want to forget who God is. Don't ever let yourself forget who God is, which is that God the Creator has dominion over His creation. He created us. He has dominion over that creation. And when His creation drifts and refuses to worship Him, He has the authority to remove them from His presence because He's holy. He's not us. He's holy. Oddly enough, when God removes wickedness, He's also showing something else to us. He's also displaying something else about his character, and it's grace. So it was a gracious thing that when you look in chapter 6, God says, I will not always strive with man. I'm giving him a buck 20. I'm giving him 120 years, and that's it. That's what he has left. The clock's ticking, hourglass turned over. That's what's happening. So God is righteous. God is holy. God is the creator. God is also the judge, but God also has the authority to show grace. And what God also does is he bestows, he shows 
He throws grace onto people who've remained faithful to him like we read in verse 8. And it says this, But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Another translation would say, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. So what God did was he chose somebody righteous. God always does that. He always grabs somebody that's walking with him, that's faithful to him. He always chooses what we call a righteous remnant. Right now it's the church. That's who God has chosen to walk with him and be faithful to him and be an example of his greatness, glory, and holiness to the world. Back then he chose Noah. He chose a righteous remnant And he chose to save him from his judgment. If you bump up to Hebrews, you'll read a little bit about Noah. It says this, By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, Noah didn't know what was happening when God showed favor and grace to him, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. And by this, he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness that comes by faith. So as we walk through Noah's story, I want us to grapple with three aspects of God's grace that come screaming from the text. And it's simply these three things. God's grace is saving grace. We're going to flesh that out. God's grace is secure. It's secure grace. And the third one is God's grace is sustaining grace. God's grace is sustaining grace. So when we dive right into 6 there, what we see is that Noah found favor with God. And it also says, if you keep reading, that he was righteous. It also says that he was blameless in his generations. And it also says that he walked with God. If you go to verse 9, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Now that's not reversed, all right? And I want to just bring out this point from the beginning so that we all understand where the writer of Genesis, who we believe is Moses, is going with this. That's not reversed. It doesn't say Noah was righteous, blameless in his generation, walked with God, and then received God's favor based on those qualifications. That's not what it says. It says earlier that Noah found grace and favor with God. The first thing we read about Noah after his birth is that he found grace in a world that had completely fallen from the Lord. Noah finds favor while everybody else has fallen. It wasn't because Noah was so righteous that he had earned some place before God. It's that God had showed him grace when he was in the middle of a fallen world and preserved him as a righteous man who was blameless in his generations and walked with him. We don't have time to flesh out what each one of those little phrases means. But God's grace was what saved Noah from falling into the wickedness of the world around him. God's grace is saving grace. And we see that so clearly here with what God did with Noah. So it's like this. Everybody who has ever received God's grace are those who were in need of God's grace. So if you're a believer, if you follow Christ, it's because you've received God's grace. In other words, if Noah's righteousness was on par with the righteousness of God, then there would be no reason why he would need God's favor in his life or be spared from the judgment that was getting ready to be hammered on the world. Does that make sense? So, let's go back to Christmas for a second. Every single gift that you received this year, man, it was an act of grace from the giver. 
Every present you got was because somebody decided to give you grace and to give you something that you didn't earn. There was no obligation. I know for some of you kids out there, you're thinking, well, what do you mean? They don't have to buy me Christmas presents? Here's the thing. They don't, kids. Like, your parents don't have to buy you birthday and Christmas presents. It's a crazy concept to sort of connect yourself with, but they're under no obligation to ever buy you any presents. It's horrifying to even think about that. But it's true. It's true. It's simply given out of love. It should also be noted that the person you received a gift from, he didn't give a gift to everybody in the world, did he? He was very specific in who he chose to give the gift to you. When you receive something, when you receive a gift from somebody, they chose you to give the gift to. Noah received grace from God because of God. And because without it, Noah would have been judged with the rest of the world. Those who don't receive grace simply refuse to believe the God of grace. Let's bump up to Romans. Make a right-hand turn. Let's go all the way to the New Testament. I want to read this. Romans chapter 1. So that we can really bring this point home. Romans chapter 1. We're going to pick up in verse 18. And this is what Paul is talking about when it comes to people who have rejected God, who've rejected God and his teaching and his goodness and his kindness and his mercy. And this is brutal, all right? These are the words of God. Let's read this. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. It's like there's truth right there, and it's like they get a lid and they go, Kerplang, and they just push it down. So what that, what that shows us is that we know the right way. We know what is right. It's just that we suppress it and we refuse to submit to it. Verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them. It's plain to them because God has shown it to them. And then he says, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So, they are without excuse, Mike dropped. You are guilty. I am guilty. We're guilty because we know. So truth is something that we refuse to submit to. Let's just keep going. Verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. It's describing what was happening around the time of the flood. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And they worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who was blessed forever. Amen. In the beginning of 26, it says, For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. You can go back to Genesis. We don't have time to flesh out every part of that verse other than to make the point that this is a picture of what we're seeing, what happened at the time of Noah when God said, enough. 
I'm going to give them up to the passions of their flesh because they have no passion for me. This is what happened in Noah's day. So as we go back to Genesis 6, we'll continue through this story, remembering again, once again, the hero of the story is not the one on the boat. God emerges as the hero just like he did last week with Adam and Eve. But the first point that we made was that God's grace is saving grace. The second point is that God's grace is secure grace. I'm going to take us through some passages right now. If you want to go to Genesis chapter 6, verse 11. Genesis 6, 11 says this. This is going to give us a bit of history and timeline about the events surrounding the flood. Now the earth was corrupting God's sight and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. And on 14, he says, make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside out with pitch. Then we want to go up to verse 17. And he said, for behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. Let's take it up to verse 22. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. So God is not screwing around. He's saying, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to blot out all flesh. But Noah, you found favor in my eyes. I've given you my grace. I have saved you. I will save you from this travesty that's getting ready to happen as I send this flood. And then we get to chapter 7, verse 11, and it says this. In the 600th year of Noah's life, dudes lived really long back then. We can't get into that, but that's the reality when you read the Genesis account. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of the heaven were opened and rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights on the very same day Noah and his sons Shem Ham and Japheth and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark they and every beast according to its kind and all the livestock according to their kinds this is what God commanded Noah to do you got to bring in some animals man you can't just be you and your sons and your wife and your son's wives. You've got to bring in some livestock. According to its kind, every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh, in which there was the breath of life. Again, there's only one person that makes things alive, that creates, and that's God. So God was calling his creation into the ark. And those that entered, male and female, of all flesh went in as God had commanded him. Now, here's the line I want us to focus on. And the Lord shut him in. The Lord shut him in. God's grace is saving grace. God's grace is secure grace. The Lord shut him in. Here's the thing. The boat, that ark, that was completely under God's control. As we start fleshing this out a little bit, understand that. 
this ark was completely under the captain, the true captain of the ship, which was God. It's not that Noah just rolled up his sleeves, he clicked on some YouTube videos of ark building, right? And embarked on a maiden voyage through the seven seas. That's not what happened. The Lord was steering the ship. There was no chance that that ark was going to sink. There was no chance Noah was going to forfeit what God had decided to do. It was God that called Noah. And it was God that shut Noah in. The Lord shut him in. If the Lord shuts you in, do you think there is someone or something that can undo that latch? Who's the God that we serve? Such a weakling that if he purposes to do something in your life like he did with Noah's life, that somehow some event or some person's going to come along and unravel that or undo it? Is there anybody that can come in between the grace that God bestows onto you and puts in your life? There isn't. If there was, I don't know what we're doing here right now. I don't know who we're worshiping right now. You guys get what I'm saying with that? The Lord shuts you in. Now, again, it doesn't mean Noah wasn't concerned when he had all those nuts and bolts left over after building the ark, right? You know, kind of like when you build something from Ikea, and if you're like me, you got half of the package of all this stuff just like laying there like on the ground going, oh boy. But it's Ikea, so I'll just buy a new one in like three months. You think it was Noah's faithfulness that preserved him in the 40 days and 40 nights? It was God who shut him in. You think Noah didn't sin while he was in the ark? I mean, Noah's just a dude. This is a sinful man. You think things never got a little testy between him and his lady living in that floating zoo exhibit they had built for themselves? I mean, let's just be honest about some of the stuff that's not written here that had to have been going on, man. Is they're like floating, they're crashing against walls, and there's water, and Noah's like thinking, oh my gosh, like I, have no, I haven't heard from the Lord. I don't know what's going on. The Lord shut him in. What did he have to look back on for his confidence? What do you have to look back on to check your confidence? Well, you have God's grace. You have God's securing grace. You have grace that shuts you in. You guys should have all just clapped when I said that, man. It should have been like nutty after I said that. God shuts you in. His grace is secure. If grace isn't secure, brothers and sisters, it is not really grace. All right? If there was a chance of the ark getting sucked down a Bermuda Triangle-sized whirlpool, all right, then the only faith Noah could have had was in the ark and in his ability as a craftsman to build some awesome ark. His security did not come from the ark, but from the one who shut him in the ark. Remember that. Remember that in your life if you know Christ. And if you don't know Christ, understand the hope that God gives you when you are living in a relationship with Him that is characterized by His saving and His secure grace. That's what it is. That's the picture of it. Picture it like that because that's what it is. We need to stop operating from the position that we need primary control. 
What this shows us is that we don't really have any control. What this shows us is that we not only don't have any control, but we're eager to give God control. I mean, I don't think Noah was really like kind of making sure that he was the one in charge of the direction of the ark in those 40 days. Right? He's remembering who shut him in. He's depending on God to steer that sheep. Remember that in your life. That's why we read and sing through what we just did a few minutes ago with what we call the assurance of grace here at Substance as we go through our liturgical part of the service with our singing. When God saves us, it's by His grace. It's not by our good. As we're seeing here so clearly with Noah, we are secured by it. Uh, Pastor, author John MacArthur says this phenomenal line. He said, if you could lose your salvation, you would. Let me just say that again. If you could lose your salvation, some of you guys are coming from different church backgrounds, all right? You're coming from a little bit of maybe some some different theological interpretations. MacArthur says, if you could lose your salvation, brother, you would. God secures us. God shuts us in because God saves us. So God's grace is saving. God's grace is secure. God's grace is sustaining little overlap between secure and sustaining. Let's flesh that out a little bit. God's grace is also sustaining. Let's go back to chapter 8. Pick up with verse 1. And it says this. God, but God, remembered Noah. Now let me stop right there. It doesn't mean God woke up one day and was like, Oh shoot, I almost forgot about my boy Noah out there just like floating on the seven seas. That's not what it means. It means I made a commitment. My grace is committed to the one that I chose to save and secure. So when it says he remembered, it means that he is keeping his promise to Noah. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. So the storm's coming to an end. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens were restrained and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. Let's bump up to verse 15. It says, then God said to Noah, go out from the ark. So the first thing we see is that God remembers Noah. He keeps his promises to Noah. That's the security of God's grace. He remembers Noah and then God sends Noah out. So now we start seeing the sustaining power of God's grace. The fact that Noah didn't just have to trust him for his journey through the seas, but he could also trust him to carry him out and into the life that God was preparing for him. That's the sustaining power of God's grace. Verse 15, Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out. He obeyed God. He took a step out of the ark. You think that step, you think that first step was a little little shaky, a little tentative? God's grace secures, it sustains. Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his son's wife's wife with them. And then 19 says, every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. So God remembered Noah. God sends Noah. And then we get up to verse 20 and we see that God makes a covenant with Noah. 
Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and he said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. We need to understand something about Noah, and it's this. He was not a perfect man. Noah was not a perfect man. Noah was not a hero. Like sometimes he's betrayed as we go up through Sunday school. In fact, if you want to jump ahead and read the end of chapter 9, you'll see what I mean. Noah had a bit of a drinking problem at times. But God's grace saved him. It was the same grace that secured him. And it was also going to be the same grace that sustained him as God moved him out to take over the land that he had created and repopulate it. It was God's decision to sustain Noah. It was God's decision to keep him. But you know what? It's not like Noah didn't just go go through a storm, did he? Noah was still in the storm. It never says that his wooden ocean liner didn't experience turbulence. Did it? It was a storm. I mean, do you think Noah understood exactly what God was planning to do during that 40 days and 40 nights and then the 150 days after the the storm was subsiding? Do you think that he just knew, oh man, everything, you know, man, God synced up his Google calendar with me and I see what's going every day of the week. It's all planned out. I know where I'm going. I know where my finances are going now. I know what kind of place he's preparing for me. I know the the, the grandkids I'm going to have. I know all the plans he has for my wife. Was any of that laid out for Noah? It wasn't. Just like it's not laid out For us, God is dramatic. Do you guys see that in the Bible? One of the things that we need to really get our minds wrapped around is that God is dramatic, man. He's dramatic. That was a dramatic move that God pulled right there, which is what makes His grace that much more sustaining in our lives. He makes dramatic moves because He is so committed. What did we say last week? To his glory. And we see his glory and we give him glory through his grace. Gives testimony to it. The flood, when we look at the flood, what we're really looking at is we're looking at an outpouring of God's grace, which is one of the words I use for the title of the sermon. It's an outpouring of God's grace. It's a way to show us that God, he will not be fudging on our redemption. He doesn't do that. He takes us through to the end. But you know what I do? You know what some of you guys do? This is what we do. We lose hope, don't we? We lose hope so easily. We think that God is weakened somehow by the very things that He created. But what we see is that God ordains the storms... And the people he chooses to save, secure, and sustain in them. It's all an act of grace. If you're a believer, listen. Every moment and occurrence is God giving you what you don't deserve. Everything. Right now, we're experiencing God's grace because, I don't know, for some reason, this whole building isn't collapsing right now. That's God's grace. All of us are going to have lunch today. Food. God's grace. We're all wearing clothes 
And if you're me, and if you saw Susan Grassi this morning, she started cracking up and said, you look like an L.L. Bean catalog today, Martin. <laughs> it is what it is. God's grace. Because I've got to wear something when I'm standing up here in front of you, or the cops are going to come. God's grace. God's grace. Every moment and occurrence is God giving us what we don't deserve. We have to think of our lives in that light as people who follow Christ. And by the way, let's go back to Noah for a second. You know, homeboy didn't live forever after the flood. It was talking about a flawed man. We're talking about a sinful man. Creation had still been catapulted into sin. The curse was still in effect. Noah was still going to die. But you know what was going to be different about Noah right now? He was going to remember the outpouring of God's grace in this season of his life. And this would be the thing that carried him through future seasons of his life. Seasons of his life that weren't all going to go incredibly well. Many of you operate under the assumption of this very real lie. And let me just square it up and say, so do I. I might say intellectually I don't believe this, but I, but I believe it by my actions. And it's this. God helps those who help themselves. Have you guys ever heard that? That famous I'm the only guy I've ever heard. All right, so I made this up. I made up this line that says, God helps those who helps themselves. That's our default. That's our default mechanism inside of us. And what I like to call it is it's a working definition of grace. It's a working definition of grace. And there's three reasons why we tend to fall into that. Number one, we don't really think we're that bad. When we think of the wickedness that God's describing, where he came to creation and said, I'm gonna, i got to wipe this out, i got to blot this out, we just think, man, they must have really been doing some bad stuff, them, their people. Now, that's us. So, number one, we don't really think we're that bad. So, we think we can nudge it out and give God a little hand every once in a while. Number two, we think we're beyond bad. Like, we think we've screwed up to such a degree that there's no possible way that God could ever look upon us favorably the way he did Noah. We think that's an impossibility. And frankly, until we go before the Lord and repent of our sins, it is. But the possibility is that when we go before the Lord, he's going to give us his grace. And three, we just don't really think either of those things ever. So our default is simply that God helps those who help themselves. But this is what grace is as we close, all right? It's God doing a work in our life because we can't work our life out. And so I would encourage you, as I'm encouraging myself, as I'm encouraging somebody who battles and wrestles and struggles massively with this, And don't think that I'm some guy on an eight-inch platform that's like going like this saying, get God's grace like me. Man, I want God to reveal his grace to me. My encouragement is that we would pray that God would open our eyes to his grace. My encouragement to you is this. Go home today. Talk about this. Talk about God's grace with your spouse. Talk about God's grace with your kids, with your grandkids, with a friend. Talk about God's grace. We're going to discuss it in our CGs this week. 
Maybe you're not in a community group. It's a good time to come into a community group. We're going to discuss God's grace as we've spoken about it today. Recall the never-ending movements of God in your life. Be reminded of those things. Be reminded of His love. Be reminded of His fatherly care as He even removes things from you that are painful, but it's another way that He's showing you His grace and sustaining you in it because He knows better. Because He's a Father, because He's a good Father that loves and cares about you. John Piper says, Faith in God's grace is the key to enduring on the narrow and hard way that leads to life. So we can rest in God because we've been saved by His grace. So now we can pursue God because we're secure in His grace. Now we can grow in God because His grace will sustain us. If it's not grace, it's just religion. And the gospel is not religion, it's redemption through Jesus Christ. And this is where the gospel comes into this story. This is where we see Christ in the gospel, in this story. God secured Noah and his family from his judgment, didn't he? In the same way that we are secure in Christ from his judgment. If we walk before him in repentance. Jesus is like the ark for all believers. We are saved from the storm of God's judgment and we can rest secure as he sustains us until the day when he makes all things new. And the gospel just literally flies from the pages of this story. Christ's sacrifice on the cross, it's like a pleasing aroma to the Father that satisfies His righteous requirement for everybody's life. What was Noah's response to these multifaceted displays of God's grace in his life? Noah worshipped. Noah worshipped because he was alive. Living in the fullness and awareness and acknowledgement of God's grace, it leads to a life of worship. So I just would ask that you would pray, that you would discuss these things deeply. And remember, God shuts us in to himself. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you acknowledging that we don't know of your grace the way we should. We read a story. We read about Noah. We read a man that you called, that you put your favorable grace on his life, and you saved him from the destruction of the world. And in that way, that is salvation for us. It's you finding favor on us so that we avoid the wrath of God. It's a glorious truth, Lord. But it's not just for that one moment. Your grace saves us, but it also secures us. We can depend on it. We can depend that we can't do anything to get rid of it. And we also understand that it sustains us through this life. We have our living and our being through your grace. Lord, Help us to understand and to grow in the knowledge of that so that it changes how we live our lives, so that it changes what it is that we're worshiping, so that it changes the things that we keep falling back into 
So it changes the way we go after things, trying so desperately hard to retain control. Lord, let us fall, just fall back completely into your saving, securing, sustaining grace. Lord, make this truth evident in our lives so that we can know your love, we can know your care, we can know your holiness. Lord, we pray, Lord, that you would continue to work in our lives, that you would add another layer of truth to them as we've heard from your word today. Lord, we pray that you, as we get ready to go into communion, that we be reminded that you need to be our nourishment. You need to be the food that sustains us. So, Lord, we pray right now, Lord, that we would honor you and glorify you in that.